Welcome back to Face the Jury, the podcast dedicated to confronting the issues of medical malpractice in America, what it is, how to spot it, and how to protect you and your family from medical negligence. I'm your host, Lloyd Bell, a medical malpractice trial lawyer representing people who've been harmed by medical negligence. For more information, visit us at belllawfirm.com. This episode of Face the Jury is brought to you by our friends at Hughesby, the nationwide leader in court reporting, videography, and trial services. Visit Hughesby.com for more information. That's H-U-S-E-B-Y.com. Today, we're rejoining our conversation with the man who literally wrote the book on medical malpractice, the co-author of Rules of the Road, a plaintiff lawyer's guide to proving liability, Pat Malone. I told you I was going to ask you about your greatest uh, satisfying result. Uh, Now I'd like you to share with us, if you can, if you've had any of these, uh, your most despairing loss, the one where that, that you still think of, that, that I don't mean to cause you emotional distress on you, got, but, uh, but you know, we learn more from our losses sometimes. That's true. I think, that's I think, true. I think a lot of people could learn uh, that even the great Pat Malone has, has been there and, and how you've dealt with it yeah. and a little bit about what happened. It hurts, man. It hurts bad. <laughs> oh, um, the, uh, the one I'm thinking of not necessarily the worst, but it was it was bad. Uh, was um, down in Roanoke, Virginia. Roanoke is southwestern Virginia. It's down uh, I eighty one, which is I eighty one is this major trucking route north and south through the Shenandoah Valley. And uh, Roanoke's a beautiful uh, small city. I think it's under a hundred thousand. But uh, we had a case for a woman who had uh, neck fusion surgery and woke up uh, unable to use one side of her body. And then it developed over the course of the next few days that on the opposite side of her body, she had limited the sensation of hot and cold. Uh, and she learned that when she took her first shower after the surgery. And she wondered, well, how come the water is only warm on on my right side and not on my left side? Well, it turns out this combination of motor loss on one side and um, sensory loss on the opposite side is a classic neurosurgical syndrome. Her neurosurgeon never investigated to see if there was something impinging on her spinal cord, a post-op. And by the time we got to trial, well, they ultimately did a uh, MRI scan several weeks later after a neurologist, you know, not a surgeon, learned about this weird pattern of um, sensory loss on one side and uh, motor loss on the other side, and they did find uh, an impingement of what looked like uh, some uh, gel foam that had been inserted in there, apparently to stop bleeding, and had had put some pressure on the on the back of the cord. And um, but it was it was already reabsorbing, and it was too late to do anything about it. 
I mean, when we, we and, and the, the, the patient was a lovely lady in her 50s, just a really nice uh, woman who was a volunteer in her community, helped run this uh, softball league uh, where her husband was one of the coaches and and she ran all the, the you know, they would uh, they would have uh, baseball games at like six different places around town. And, and so setting up the logistics of all that, she she would do that. That was all pre-injury. And so a, a pretty bad injury and the defense, they wound up their neurosurgeon at trial, who was some fancy guy from Duke, who never testified for plaintiffs, by the way. Right. He admitted that the guy was at fault, should have done the MRI scan within 24 hours of her coming up with the, with the muscle weakness on one side. But he, he had an excuse that went in a totally different direction. He said it was a, a stroke of the spinal cord, which is their favorite excuse du jour oh, in neurosurgery. Yes. I've heard that before. Yep. Because yep. it's not provable one way or the right. other. You, you can't rule it in. You can't rule it out. So it's a fit, wonderful defense if you can do it with a straight face. And uh, that was his causation defense. And the jury came back within, gosh, two hours. And I thought, oh, boy, this is going to be a good plaintiff's verdict. And no, it was a defense verdict. They, there, was, there were no special questions. In Virginia, you just uh, say, for whom do you find? Right. General verdict. And they said, we find for the defendant. And the guy was a jerk anyway, frankly. Um, he was not a sympathetic person. And we were just stunned. And we... I, I couldn't bring myself to talk to jurors afterwards, but we uh, we had a friend do it, and it turned out they were just not a very empathetic bunch of people. Um, in fact, a couple of them uh, criticized our lady for spending so much time in the community and not being at home for her husband. I mean, it was really strange. Oh, oh gosh, it was it, oh, was, it was weird. We were in Roanoke, Virginia. That's a conservative place. It was just people, but but conservative often goes with empathy. You know, uh, I'm a blue dog Democrat myself, but uh, or whatever the term is, yellow dog, blue dog, some kind of dog. One, one of those colors. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but I have Republican friends, and and the truth is that as a group. Uh, in terms of like donations to charities, Democrats are notoriously cheap compared to Republicans in terms of generosity. So there is uh, an empathy deficit out there in the world, but it's not confined to one political party or another. So I just found found it baffling, upsetting, and but we did everything we could and Ultimately, I had to resign myself to uh, just having a, a jury that didn't listen carefully. Well, and, and I, I'm familiar with Roanoke. I went to college just up the street at, in Lexington at Virginia Military Institute. So I spent time in Roanoke okay. and, and familiar with the valley, yeah. Shenandoah Valley and in uh, and and that area. And I'm a small C conservative. It, it's, I suspect you're going to see more 
uh, you know, people more closely aligned with the medical community and more establishment and um, it's not hard and fast rules, yeah. but that was, that was my suspicion. Not yeah. Well, uh, you know, we had had um, seven or eight years before, before this, in fact, uh, the same defense lawyer, um, I'd had another trial in Roanoke that worked out great. We got a big verdict for a, a little girl who had um, a birth injury. Uh, it was uh, defended very vigorously, but we got a, a nice plaintiff's verdict. So go figure. I don't know. The old, the old adage is any trial lawyer that tells they've never lost a case means they haven't tried many. Cause, yeah. Uh, that's, uh, you know, we, we just try to, all we can do is just try to get better and learn from the losses. And, yeah. Uh, but boy, I, I, feel, I feel, feel for you, Pat, because we've all been there. I want to take a moment to acknowledge that this episode of Face the Jury is brought to you by our friends at Hughesby Reporting, the nationwide leader in court reporting, videography, and trial services. I have been working with Hughesby for a number of years, and the things that I like best about them are they are incredibly reliable, they have high quality court reporters, and their post-production is just excellent. Uh, they get the transcripts to us on time, they're very diligent with the, with the uh, exhibits and making sure they're properly organized. And when you're taking a deposition, and as many depositions as we take at Bell Law Firm, that reliability is critical. And we are very pleased to have them as our sponsors, and I would encourage any trial lawyers out there or defense lawyers who want that reliability and that level of service to contact our friends at Husby and visit them at Husby.com. That's H-U-S-E-B-Y.com. Let me shift gears and ask you about an uh, organization where we met. Uh, you've been a uh, longtime member of the Inner Circle of Advocates. Um, I had the privilege of being invited to join a few years ago which is where you and I met yeah. for the first time. Although I had, I'd read all your books. I had read um, Rules of the Road, which in the intro, I, I, I made the point that I think it is the most important book. But tell me how you, you and Rick came to develop that concept of Rules of the Road and why you think it is, I'm sure you think this because I do and everybody I know does, is such an important book, particularly helping you know, younger trial lawyers be more effective in, in helping their clients. Well, I got to give Rick 100% of the credit for coming up with the idea. He invented the whole concept of rules of the road, and he wrote uh, an initial manuscript of the first book. And I remember giving a talk at one of my first inner circle meetings about uh, legal writing and uh, trying to be a more have a more plain, straightforward, non-lawyer style in your writing. And he came up to me afterwards and asked me to look at this manuscript and see if I could help him with it. And uh, I looked at it and I said, sure. And and I thought it was great. Uh, and, I, and I said, but yeah, I think I can contribute something here. I can help you expand this beyond insurance bad faith into the world of just general personal injury medical negligence, lots of allied uh, kinds of things. And so we wound up, you know, kind of pushing out the boundaries of the book. But the concept was was all his. Tell us the concept, Pat. I'm going to interrupt you, but for people who aren't familiar with it, what, what is the rules of the road? What does that mean? Yeah. So the, the concept is 
that you try to find common ground where you can force the defendant to agree with something and then prove that that's important and then prove that the defendant violated that. Let's just take it in the MedMal context. A good rule of the road for a MedMal case might be a doctor has a duty to tell the patient the risks and benefits of the surgery and obtain the patient's informed consent. That's actually only part of a good rule because it's too jargonistic. It uses medical legal terminology and a lot of lay people on the jury get confused by it. So what Rick came up with and that and how I helped him develop it with some other good examples was you have to have a rule, a rule that's important that the defendant violated. It has to be a rule that they must agree with or they look foolish. And informed consent rule is such a rule. Hey, it's just a legal requirement. They know that. They have to admit to it. But the other key kicker that really took this up a whole nother notch, and it's, it's you know, obvious in hindsight, but a lot of great ideas are obvious <laughs> in hindsight, right. is to say that the rule not only has to be inarguable, it has to be clear to the jury. So a clear rule, a rule that's only inarguable is not a persuasive rule because it's, it's ambiguous and, and people don't understand it. A rule that's clear and inarguable is a powerful, powerful rule. And just to tell you how I would take that informed consent rule and transform it, so the old rule would be a doctor has a duty to tell the patient the risks and benefits of the surgery and obtain the patient's informed consent. That's the old version. The new version is a doctor has to tell the patient the important facts about the surgery so that the patient can make an intelligent decision. Much clearer. A doctor has to tell the patient the important facts so the patient can make an intelligent decision. That's actually the legal rule in most jurisdictions now. And I don't want to get into the weeds too much here, but some of our listeners will be in states that have a uh, doctor-centered rule versus a patient-centered rule. A patient-centered rule is the doctor has to tell the patient the facts that a reasonable person would find important. Uh, a doctor-centered rule is that a doctor has a duty to tell the patient the facts that other doctors customarily would tell the patient. Right. So that's a professional rule and you got to have an expert for that, right? To, right? to say that. A patient-centered rule, a doctor has to tell the patient the facts that a, a patient would find important, uh, a reasonable patient would find important. That doesn't necessarily even need an expert. Now, sometimes the facts will need a little bit of an expert footing. For an example, 
the idea that one kind of surgery has a greater risk than another kind of surgery. Yeah, you might have to have a doctor explain that, but uh, that there are different risks and that the one chosen by the defendant under the circumstances of this case was the riskier choice. But in, in a, a state with a doctor-centered rule, uh, it would be a defense that, well, yeah, the choice he made was a little riskier, but we don't tell people that because that's just not the way we do it in this state. It would scare them. Yeah, it would scare, scare the them too much. And we want our patients right. to be calm going into surgery. Well, in the patient-centered state, they can't say that. And you get to kind of actually put the jury in their shoes of the patient and say, well, if you were going into this surgery, what would what would you want? Which is kind of a golden rule situation, but uh, but because that's the rule of law, it it is an exception to the to the ban on uh, on golden rule arguments. So I I have a a personal thing about informed consent. I've always thought that there are there's a hidden informed consent case in many medical cases that a lot of times lawyers do not develop and you really need to think about developing the informed consent angle on your case. It can be, especially in a close case, it can really be uh, a tiebreaker. In fact, um, we had a, it was not my case, but we had a reported decision in Maryland in a birth injury case uh, where the plaintiff ultimately recovered many millions of dollars because of having an informed consent claim. And the claim was that when the doctor told the woman who had this placenta problem, that what we're going to do is just put you in the hospital and watch you for the this last couple of weeks before uh, your normal uh, delivery date. When he made that decision, but did not give her the option of an early C-section right now, that was a potential informed consent violation. And it wound up that the plaintiff lost on the main negligence claim because the jury found, yes, that was a reasonable conservative choice to, say, bed rest and careful monitoring. But the plaintiff won on not giving her the choice, the patient. So it, it's hugely, hugely important. Well, you've brushed up against this a couple of times today about the, the, the moral core of a case, the morality of a case. And I, I tell younger lawyers who are in this practice that you can't lose sight of what the moral core is of your case. I know Rick Friedman, our friend, has talked about this as well, that there's a, a moral dimension and that juries are going to be looking at this at this case or this story unfold, and they are going to be putting themselves in the situation. They, they just can't. We're humans. We're empathetic yeah. creatures. You just can't help but think, boy, if I was in, in, in that person's shoes, I would sure want to know if, if, if there's a risk, what the risk is. And, yeah. and I, would, I would want to, you know, I want to make the choices that affect my body, my health, you know, those kinds of things. Those are really, really good points. Um, Pat, we're coming up to the conclusion of our show today. But before we finish, I wanted to ask you about 
uh, a talk you gave at the Inner Circle this past summer. And I had the pleasure of hearing you speak about two of your passions. One is photography, and your other passion, of course, is, is trial practice. You gave a wonderful talk where you melded the two passions and talked about the skills and artistry of being a photographer helps inform and make you a better trial attorney. I'd like you to spend a few minutes talking about those, those two disciplines and how they come together uh, in your life. Well, I'd love to. Uh, thank you for asking. Um, you know, photography is something I've always been interested in, but I've only gotten really passionate about it in the last probably four or five years. And it, it just occurred to me that taking good pictures and showing the beauty of a, of a landscape or a, a bird or, or uh, whatever it is, that there is a, a lot of overlap between that and what trial lawyers do. And um, one of the things is that a, a trial lawyer uh, simplifies. A trial lawyer reduces the clutter of the case and goes for uh, what is the essence of what is going on here. Well, particularly in landscape photography, the difference between a really good shot and almost really good shot is a matter of adjusting your camera just an inch or two um, because of the different view you get and reducing the clutter of the landscape to get to the essence of, of what you're trying to show is really an important part of developing an eye to, to be a good, a good photographer. There are lots of other similarities and uh, analogies uh, between the two. One is, uh, and, and I, I think I kind of ended my talk with this, I believe I showed a close-up of a sparrow sparrows are the most common bird in America. They hang around our, our streets. They're always looking for little scraps of bread and stuff that people have discarded. And you never notice them. They're just little tiny brown birds. Well, if you take to the trouble of seeing a sparrow in, number one, in good light with sunshine shining on the sparrow. And then you take a photo of it close up. It is an amazingly beautiful creature. And similarly with our clients, a lot of people come to us and they're just kind of, you know, regular humanity, don't look any different than anybody else. But if you look at them closely, and you understand them, and you look at them in the right light, and you, you shine the light of truth-telling on your client, you can really bring out the beauty of what would, you know, a lot of times you just think, this is just a regular, ordinary person, but actually they're unique, and they're wonderful, and they're our clients, and if you can put that forward to the jury, I, I think you're way ahead of the persuasion game. Pat, it has been such a privilege to talk to you today. And uh, I love this. I'm going to hold on to the story of the sparrow. I think that is a, a perfect metaphor for what we're trying to do as trial lawyers, to reveal the beauty of our clients, the humanity of our clients, and celebrate 
you know, their, their, their humanity. It's just a, a wonderful metaphor. And I appreciate you sharing it with us today. And I appreciate you sharing with us your other stories and experiences and, and spending some time with us. I know, uh, I know you're busy, uh, a busy trial lawyer. The courtrooms are open back up. You're probably getting ready for trial as we speak. But I do thank you for taking some time out of your day and spending it with us. Well, I, I, I thank you, Lloyd. And, and actually, I remember one tiny little story seeing you. Um, I think the morning after I gave that talk about photography, and it was super early in the morning, and I was coming back from the pool at this hotel and uh, you reminded me of one of the other little sayings that I put into uh, that talk which was a trial lawyer shows up early <laughs> that's right that's exactly right it uh, it's not always easy but uh, I took that as a metaphor for shows up early and gets to work that's and, right uh, you certainly you certainly lived lived your life that way Well, thank you, Pat, and you have a good rest of your day, and thank you for being with us today on Face the Jury.